So let's pray and we will resume. Uh, Father, thank you for this opportunity here this evening to gather with your people and think about your works and your word and your mercy and grace to us. These are good things. We thank you for your mercies even of this day. And we don't say that glibly. We truly, truly mean that. And we thank you for your promises for the present and for the future, Lord. Um, You never change. Your Son never changes. And your commitment to us never changes. Lord, teach us to find our rest and peace in who you are, what you've done, and what you've said. And remind us, Lord, of that often. We do pray for the progress of your gospel in our, in our own lives and in our families and uh, in our church, in our city, in our nation, Lord, indeed throughout the world. We thank you that Jesus is reigning at your right hand and that his kingdom cannot fail and how blessed we are that you've included us in it. So we pray that you would bless with your spirit our ministries and and give us the opportunities that, that the doors that only you can open. Uh, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, well, we've been um, going through the Gospels and just trying to go in chronological order. And we've got this complicated chart here, which I'm not going to fully explain uh, tonight. But where we are, this is on, Jesus is traveling from the north to the south, and all of the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all represent this as like his final journey to Jerusalem. And so we've been following that in all four Gospels. And tonight, uh, we are we're going to pick it up in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, around verse 35. I'm going to back up just a little bit to verse 32, and then we'll pick it up at verse 35. And we might be able to do three incidents tonight. That is, uh, James and John wanting to sit at the right and the left of the Lord, <laughs> and then Jesus' uh, healing of Bartimaeus at Jericho, and uh, then Jesus calling Zacchaeus the chief tax collector. So those are our three events that are in order here, in chronological order. And maybe we can we can get through all three of them. But your your questions are are very welcome uh, as we go. So picking it up here, Mark ten thirty two. Uh, you notice the language. Now they were on the road going to Jerusalem. And we see that in, in Matthew as well as Mark. They're on the road going to Jerusalem and Jesus was going before them. And they were amazed. And as they followed, the they here are the twelve apostles and maybe some other disciples. And I should say this, our emphasis right now is historical. So I'm going to emphasize the historical details of these accounts. And then later we're going to come back and do the theology. But So we want to understand things kind of historically. So they is the twelve apostles, and there's probably more than twelve. There's probably other disciples that are following him. Uh, and they were amazed as they followed and were afraid. And of course... The reason they're afraid, we've understood that, the last time Jesus was in Jerusalem, they attempted to kill him. And every time Jesus had been in Jerusalem for at least the last year, it always ended with a threat to his life, which is why he didn't spend a lot of time in Jerusalem. We've noticed that in our study. He really doesn't spend much time in Jerusalem. And it's because the hostility has been so great and his time has not yet come. And so he withdraws from Jerusalem. And so they're all aware of that. And they're afraid. And so Jesus took the twelve, the twelve aside. Now Judas is in the mix here. Judas is in the mix. He takes the twelve aside again. 
And this is the third time Jesus predicts his death and his rejection. That's what the again is about. Uh, at least three times we have recorded. And again, and he began to tell them the things that would happen to him. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests. Now think of it. Judas is sitting here. Judas is in the audience right there when Jesus takes the twelve aside and says the Son of Man will be betrayed. And uh, we know that those of us that have read the Gospels that Judas is going to be that betrayer. Uh, Jesus knows that at this time, doesn't he? Jesus, we know from other scripture, has said he knew from the beginning who it was who would betray him. So I just think of the actual setting there. Uh, The Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles, and they will mock him, scourge him, and spit on him, and kill him, And the third day he will rise again. So we have this explicit prediction again. And and we are only uh, weeks away. Okay, so from here we're going to end up in Jericho. And then we're only going to be about two weeks away from the Lord's death and resurrection. So so he tells them this uh, time, and I won't review that anymore. And so, while they're going on the road here, we're up to verse 35, and uh, James and John asked to sit at Jesus' right hand. So, then James and John, we're reading Mark here, then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. (laughs) I, I I like that. Mark, there's something special about the Gospel of Mark. It, it, there, there's a uh, earthiness or just a vividness of the way Mark writes his account. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, <clears throat> grant us that we may sit one on your right hand and the other on your left in your glory. But Jesus said to them, you do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They said to him, we are able. So Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink the cup that I drink. And with the baptism I am baptized with, you will be baptized. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be greatly displeased with James and John. But Jesus called them to himself and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So that's Mark's account. This account is in um, Matthew and Mark. And from Matthew, we learn that Mrs. Zebedee is involved in this. So let's pop over to Matthew here, Matthew 20, 20 through 28. And Matthew gives us a few other details. Then, then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to him with her sons, kneeling down and asking something from him. So this incident doesn't begin with James and John interacting with the Lord. It actually begins with their mother. 
And she comes and kneels down asking something from him. And he said to her, what do you wish? She said to him, grant that these two sons of mine may sit, one at your right hand and the other at your left in your kingdom. But Jesus answered and said, you do not know what you ask. And now are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? In Matthew's account, the dialogue begins with Mrs. Zebedee, but when Jesus responds, he's talking to the disciples. You see, Jesus answered and said, this is addressed to the to James and John. Okay, so uh, <clears throat> anyway, so we know Mrs. Zebedee was, you know, was involved in this and came with her two sons. Now, regarding Mrs. Zebedee, we are surprised by her appearance. We are far from Galilee, aren't we? And Mrs. Zebedee is a resident of northern Israel, so we are, we are far from, uh, we are far from Galilee and with Jesus and his disciples. Now, has she been traveling with them on Jesus' final trip to Jerusalem? Or has she showed up because messianic expectations regarding Jesus are circulating and that he is going to Jerusalem and will finally be recognized as king and accept that recognition? See, that thinking is going on. Now, we're going to see that. I'm not reading that in because we're going to see that in a moment when we get to the Zacchaeus incident that the crowd is expecting the kingdom of God is going to appear immediately. So those kind of messianic expectations have always been in Jesus' followers, even in his superficial followers, that Jesus is going to be this political Messiah and he is going to take the reign and 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 Israel is going to uh, become an independent nation and rebel against the Roman Empire and reestablish the theocracy like under a David and a Solomon. So you can see what's going on here. They're heading toward Jerusalem and those that haven't been listening, that's just about everybody, correct? <laughs> Nobody's been listening to Jesus say, "This is when I go to Jerusalem... This is what's going to happen. They're not listening to him. And, and they can't get it out of their heads that they're still thinking this political Messiah. And uh, so it's, you see, so Mrs. Zebedee, it's about to happen. He's going to be crowned in Jerusalem. So that's, that's going on here. And you might remember, what did they do in John chapter 6? maybe a year earlier than this, that relates to what I'm saying. After the feeding of the 5,000, they tried to take him by force and make him king. And he withdrew from them. And you see, because they didn't understand the difference between the first coming of the Messiah and his second coming. And if they read the prophets carefully enough, they would have realized that, and Jesus uh, reproves them later for that. So, these messianic expectations that are misguided, uh, Jesus is the Messiah, but they don't understand the kingdom, are causing people to do things like this. Uh, who's going to sit at the right and the left? So, now, this request is kind of surprising because a few days ago or a, a week or two ago, we don't know, they're afraid, correct? <laughs> Just a little while earlier, they're afraid to go to Jerusalem. And now, somehow, they're in a different state. They must be because now they're not afraid anymore and they think they're going to get to sit at the right and the left. I, you know, I, I can't explain that. It's just, uh, 
their state is obviously in flux of what they're thinking and feeling because they don't seem to be afraid now uh, asking this type of thing. So they're jockeying for the two highest positions in the kingdom. Now, uh, this was not the best day, one of the best, best days for James, John, and their mother. James, John, and Peter were somewhat of an inner circle with Jesus, right? We, we, we've seen that. Jesus takes them to special events where he doesn't take the others. But they leave Peter out here, okay? So Peter's out. And even though, even though the Lord has told them that Peter is going to be the rock, and even though Peter has the prophecy that on this rock I will build my church, they must have forgotten about that because he's out. He's not going to be at the right or the left. Uh, and, you know, human nature is on display here. We're all the same. It is both convicting and humorous at the same time. So Peter is left out as well as the nine other disciples. And we are told... When the ten heard it, and that would include Peter, when the ten heard it, they began to be greatly displeased with James and John. Now, lest we think that they totally thought up this idea on their own, we should not forget what Jesus has told them earlier. Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, When the Son of Man sits on the throne of His glory, you who have followed Me will also sit on twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. There you go. Now, how do you think they understood that when they heard it? Well, they thought the throne is going to be physically right here in Jerusalem and it's going to be like David and Solomon. And they didn't understand in the regeneration, Jesus is talking there about the second coming, but they're not thinking that way. So they could very easily have said, well, he's already told us we're going to be sitting on twelve on the twelve thrones. So now apparently this was not good enough for Mrs. Zebedee and her two sons. You know, one of the twelve thrones, that's not good enough. We gotta be on the left and the right. I, I, I don't. Maybe I'm being too harsh, but I, I find some of this humorous. Uh, maybe I have a twisted sense of humor, but but so so before we condemn them too much, Jesus made these kind of promises to them that they're going to sit on those twelve thrones. And is there any correlation between that statement of the twelve thrones and judging the tribes of Israel and Revelation? Oh, I think so. Yeah. And we see the twelve. We see the symbology of the twelve all throughout scripture. And, and so I think, and not everybody understands this the same way, but, but I think Jesus is recreating Israel. He is creating a new and faithful Israel that's going to believe in him. And the foundation of that is these 12 apostles. I mean, that's not an accident that there were 12 tribes and now there's 12 apostles. There is a transition, you see, to the foundation of this regenerated new, new kingdom or new Israel. And I think that's why he does choose 12. And see, the, the, the leadership of Israel is no longer going to be in Jerusalem. It's no longer going to be the the high priest and and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, that whole Mosaic Covenant structure is going away and there is a whole new structure being set up based on Jesus and the and the twelve apostles. And so we see that in, in the book of Revelation that uh, they you know those names are on the the, the foundation stones and so uh, but there's a lot of controversy over how what all that means. But yes, definitely, um, <clears throat> they are the foundation. And uh, Paul says that 
the, the, the new temple, the body of Christ, Ephesians 2, the bottom part of Ephesians 2 talks about you are a new temple, a dwelling place for God and the Spirit on the foundation of Christ the cornerstone and the apostles and the prophets. In, in Ephesians 2, you read, read the last part of Ephesians 2 and you'll, you'll see a connection about the foundation. So, yeah. So, okay. So, lest we judge them too harshly, they did have this uh, promise about sitting on the throne. Now, Jesus challenges them asking if, if they are able, are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. And they, of course, say, we are able. And there's a there's a hymn like that, isn't there? Uh, the staunchy dreamers said... <laughs> Any of you know that hymn? Nobody? Yeah, there's, there's a hymn about this, about them. And, and it says, the staunchy dreamers said, we are able. You have, we have to look that hymn up. Well, they, of course, don't know what they're talking about, and Jesus has told them that. Now, he does say, however, Jesus did predict that one day they will drink a similar cup. And what is he referring to? Let's see here. I think he's, yeah, I think he's referring to their martyrdom. They they will be put to death. I know that is true. Yeah, yeah, you're right, um, Brian. So he said to them, "Are you able to drink the cup?" That, of course, is an Old Testament illustration, isn't it? Drinking the cup means to experience personally what the cup represents, and often it's a judgment. Drinking the cup of God's wrath mixed at full strength. That's often in the Old Testament. It's not blessing. <clears throat> Though in the Lord's Supper, it's this cup of blessing. But that, that expression there is like experiencing what the cup is filled with. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? And be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. What is he talking about here? No? Jonathan. Oh, hey, you're right, man. <laughs> you're currently in the baptism class. <laughs> yeah, this shows us the meaning of the term baptize or baptism doesn't have to be associated with water. Okay, what it means is, is to be immersed in the thing you're baptized into or overwhelmed by the thing you're baptized into. So what is Jesus going to be baptized into? Sufferings. That's what he's talking about. He's not going to just have a little bit of suffering. He is going to be completely immersed in suffering, then he he uses this term. Baptism means that you are overwhelmed or by the thing you're baptized into, and he's talking about his sufferings. He is going to be overwhelmed by suffering. Uh, they said we are able. Of course, they weren't. So, you indeed will be. Uh, they will be martyred, and uh, except for John. <laughs> we don't know how John died. Do we know how John died? Well, when we get to the book of Acts, we're going we're gonna to end up doing that. We're going to go through each of the apostles. But, yeah. Let's go on here. But, the decision to sit on my right and on my left is not mine, but not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Uh, now, their request does reveal one good thing. They do believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Correct? They, they really do. And that's a good thing. <laughs> and that's very evident. They wouldn't be asking him these kind of questions if they really didn't believe 
and wanted to follow him. Now the other ten disciples are indignant with the two brothers. All twelve are sorely mistaken about Jesus' kingdom and behaving like heathen rulers. And so Jesus does reprove them about that, doesn't he? And uh, But Jesus called them to himself. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And those who are great exercise authority over them. And I like this strong negative. Yet it shall not be so among you. And he's saying, you are behaving like these heathen rulers that lust for authority and lord it over their subjects. And so they do get a lesson, not only they, but we get it also. And I just like that statement, yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great, let him be your servant. And then it gets even stronger. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. And then we have this statement. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Now, this dispute as to who will sit to the right and left to be the greatest. This dispute occasions one of the most theologically significant statements from Jesus in all of the Gospel. If you were to try to prove substitutionary atonement from the Gospels alone, How much material would you find? Not a lot. Not a lot. Now you would find, you know, you'd find John chapter 6. Okay, I mean it's there. But this is, this is it. This is the pillar statement on Jesus' lips interpreting his death. How Jesus sees his own death. This is a theological battle of the bulge in theology of of liberal theology versus biblical conservative theology, this text. And we'll return to this text when we do theology. All I'm pointing out here now is this occasion about the dispute over who's going to be the greatest is what occasioned Jesus to make this statement. So we we will return to this statement. That's all I'm going to say. Uh, I'm going to say right now. Okay, so let's move on. And where we're going to go now is actually we're going to make it to Jericho, and we're going to go back to Mark, chapter ten. We're continuing on, and so now Mark moves us now to when they came to Jericho. He was with his disciples in a great multitude. Blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, sat by the road begging. Now let's, let's figure this out geographically where, where we are here. Jericho, here's Jerusalem. We've been coming south. This is the Jordan River here. So we've been we've been coming south, probably on the east side of the Jordan, and we cross over the Jordan and we come into Jericho, and Jesus is going to head for Jerusalem. This is about a one day one day journey, easy one day journey, Jericho to Jerusalem. So Matthew doesn't make the route clear. But since the next specific location he mentions, and same with Mark, is Jericho, we may reasonably assume, like other Galilean Jews, Jesus took the route down the east side of the Jordan to avoid going through Samaria, finally crossing back at Jericho, and then to climb up to Jerusalem. However, we should also keep in mind that sometime between Jesus' 
remaining in Ephraim. Remember when we ended up in Ephraim? You remember when? How did the Lord end up in Ephraim? And what gospel is it that tells us he ended up in Ephraim? Nope. John. Gospel of John. It was when he was at that, after he raised Lazarus from the dead. They were plotting again to kill him, and he withdrew to Ephraim. And John says he stayed there with his disciples. So sometime between that point in time and where we are now, and I cannot connect it, Jesus left Ephraim, went back somewhere east of the Jordan, and is coming south, heading to Jericho. Uh, so, But we know during this last three months, Jesus has been in Jerusalem, and he's been in, in Ephraim, and he's been up there north. Uh, when he came back to raise Lazarus. And now we know he's on this journey going south. And finally, when we get to Jericho, all four Gospels converge. They, they all begin giving the account from here. Keep in mind Jesus' season in Ephraim. And that we know from the Gospel of John only. Alright, so they're coming into Jericho. And so there's now a crowd traveling with him. And when the synoptic authors begin describing Jesus' final trip to Jerusalem, they all indicate that it began with only Jesus and his disciples. So as they've come south, the crowd has gotten larger and larger. But when we reach Jericho, it's a sizable crowd following him. Luke and Mark tell us that. Yeah, a great multitude. Okay, He went out of Jericho with his disciples and a great multitude is now following him. Now, also, what else is going on that's causing the crowd to swell? What's that? That's correct. We're getting close to the Passover because when Jesus goes to Bethany, which is going to be the uh, next day after this, It's going to be six days before the Passover. So the crowds are swelling when you get closer to Jerusalem because the pilgrim feast, many people are traveling to the Passover. So that's going to be contributing to the crowd swelling is they're going to what we've called Passover number three in the life of Jesus. Now, Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, is the only person whom Jesus healed except Lazarus, whose name is mentioned in the Gospels. Don't know why that is. It's just kind of unique. Blind Bartimaeus. It's like he was well known and, and his name, his name is mentioned. Uh, and so let's read the account. Blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, sat by the road begging. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus of Nazareth, have mercy on me. Is that what he said? No, he didn't say that, did he? (laughs) You think that's significant? Of course you do, because of what I'm doing. (laughs) Absolutely it's significant. Jesus of Nazareth, well, okay, but when he cries out, Jesus, son of David, he's referring to Jesus as the Messiah. He's the Christ. He is the son of David, not a son of David. Jesus, son of David. Though Bartimaeus is blind, he has better sight than most of the people in that crowd as to who Jesus really is. And so he actually addresses Jesus basically as the Messiah and asks him for mercy. So, And then for some crazy reason, then many warned him to be quiet. You know, I don't get it. It's a sad, I mean... It's, you know, humanity, you know, humanity, we can be very ugly. (laughs) 
you know, here's a blind man crying out for mercy. And Jesus has performed tons of miracles. And a lot of people in that crowd know that. And they're telling him, and the other account says they sternly warned him to be quiet. Well, praise the Lord for Bartimaeus. He's a wonderful example of faith. But he cried out all the more. (laughs) He cried out even louder. (laughs) And that's how you and I need to be when we're seeking the Lord. No matter who tells us to shut up or whatever people tell us to don't go to the Lord, we need to do the opposite. He cried out all the more, and Son of David, have mercy on me. So Jesus stood still. It's a big crowd, and he cried out loud enough. There obviously must have been quite a bit of commotion with the crowd. But he cried out loud enough that Jesus, and they're all walking like this, right? And Jesus stops. You know, and probably some of them in front of Jesus kept going because they didn't know he stopped. But there's this big mass of humanity going along the road here. And Jesus hears this voice above all the commotion. Son of David, have mercy on me. And he hears that. Praise the Lord. He hears that and he stops. So Jesus stood still and commanded him to be called. Then they called the blind man, saying, Be of good cheer, rise, he's calling you. And uh, this is Mark's vivid account. And throwing aside his garment, that's Mark. That's how Mark writes. So he must have jumped up, and I don't know why he threw aside his garment, but maybe because he could go faster without it. That may be the case. Because, you know, the robe was pretty long, and either you gird it up or you throw it aside. So that's probably so that, I mean, he's gonna, someone's gonna have to lead him. I mean, he's blind, so, so someone's gonna have to lead him to Jesus. And so he throws aside his garment, And he rose up and he came to Jesus. So Jesus answered and said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabboni, that I may receive my sight. Then Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he received his sight. And he didn't go his way. And he followed Jesus on the road. So there's some emphasis in Mark here about discipleship. We're going to return to that later also, but I think Mark is setting this forward as an example of discipleship, uh, that he followed Jesus on, on the road. He wanted to be with Jesus, and he began following him uh, immediately. So uh, the other account says Jesus t- touched his eyes and... Um, Just tremendous miracle. Now, regarding this account, and we always study the history of the text and these issues with the the text, over on page 152 now, left-hand column, about the third paragraph down, this account presents one of the few cases of apparent contradiction in the Synoptic Gospels. Luke has Jesus healing Bartimaeus before he enters Jericho. So I I just want to show you this, because like I always say, the skeptics know all this. So if we're going to defend the faith, uh, we need to know these things. And uh, let me get to Luke 18, verse 35. Here we are in Luke. Then it happened as he was coming near Jericho that a certain blind man sat by the road begging. <clears throat> and hearing a multitude passing by, he asked and so forth. He cried out, Son of David, have mercy on me. So Luke has this occurring <clears throat> as they are coming near Jericho. And Mark has it occurring... Now they came to Jericho, and 
as he went out of Jericho with his disciples in a great multitude, blind Bartimaeus and so forth. So Luke has him coming in, Mark has him going out. So that's one of the issues. Um, the second apparent discrepancy, which isn't as difficult as its first one, is that the accounts in Luke and Mark refer to only one individual, Bartimaeus, being healed. But Matthew refers to two men being healed. Matthew 20. Now, as they went out of Jericho, Matthew and Mark agree as far as going out or going in. A multitude followed him, and behold, two blind men were sitting by the road when they heard that Jesus was passing by, cried out, Have mercy on us, O Lord, Son of David. Okay, so there you have some textual difficulties in, you know, regarding, regarding this, this account. So let's see here. Okay. And it's not, it's, it's beyond the scope of our study here to discuss the long list of solutions which have been proposed and none of them really appear satisfying. So, you know, we don't know how this reconciles. And um, <clears throat> that doesn't mean we don't believe in the inerrancy of the Word of God. We do believe in inerrancy. And, and we, we believe there is an answer. There's some type of solution to this that, you know, that we're not aware of. And, and we, we need not to be ashamed to say that. Um, and I could, you know, I could give you an illustration, and pardon the math illustrations, but, you know, if you have a, you know, a big math book, and let's say it's on calculus and all this, all this stuff and differential equations and all of that. And, and you know, you go through 99% of it and all of it makes sense, okay? And let's say it's written by one author and you go through 99% of your calculus book and all the theorems make sense and all the proofs make sense and all of that all makes sense. But there's one that just doesn't seem right. Now, what do you think? The other 99% are right, and it's the same author. Who do you think is limited? The author or you? Probably that last, you know, there, there's, there's 500 proofs in the book, and one of the proofs doesn't seem to work. But it's the same author of all 500. You think maybe you should withhold judgment <laughs> rather than the author's in error. That, that's, that's all. Uh, this isn't the only place that this type of thing exists in the Scripture. It, it, there, some, there are a few places that are very difficult to, to say, boy, this does look like a contradiction. Okay? So, so, I've never been one not to point out the difficult things to you. And you, can't, you cannot be too familiar with the text of Scripture. You know, you, you, just, you just cannot. And those you, you guys that want to teach, the book you need to study more than any other book is this book. And I have thousands of other books, okay? <laughs> but, but you can't be too familiar with all of Scripture. So... This account presents us uh, with a, something that's difficult uh, to reconcile. All right. So, well, we did two of them, and we're up to Zacchaeus. We don't have enough time to do Zacchaeus. <laughs> this, this was the greatest one. Well, they're all great, but I, uh, God calling Zacchaeus gives us sinners hope. <laughs> so that's why it's, it's, it's a great one. Let's stop actually a little bit early, but we can have discussion or questions about these passages or anything if if you would like. Heidi. Okay, here's our socially distancing microphone. You've mentioned this in the past, but the fact that we have these accounts 
and they don't perfectly line up yes. also show us a real how reliable they probably are, as in they didn't come together oh. and say, okay, we both have to make sure we have the exact same words we're saying to you. know. So uh, you've mentioned this in the past, yes. but it, this oh, brought it up. Okay, I can elaborate that. You know, if we have four Gospels, and if you if you went into court, let's say you went into the you went in the court and you said, "I've got three witnesses here of the accident that occurred, you know, at Bethany and 35th Avenue. I got three witnesses here." And the judge was really smart, and he said, "You know, I want to interview the witnesses by themselves, one at a time." Okay, so you bring in the first witness and and said, "Well, what did you see?" Oh, well, I saw a red car going westbound, uh, maybe at 50 miles per hour in the left lane, and then it moved over to the right lane, and and then it had the blinker on, and then it turned left, and okay, very good, first witness. Bring in the next witness. What did you see? Oh, well, I saw a red car going westbound in the in the left lane, and then it moved to the right lane, and then it turned the blinker on, and then it turned... And you bring in a third witness and, well, what did you see? I saw a red car coming west, going 50 miles an hour, moving in the right lane, moving on the left. Then it turned on the blinker. And the judge is starting to say, I don't think these accounts are authentic. Because it's not possible for three witnesses witnessing the same event to have it without collusion. You know, they're all saying exactly the same words. They're using the same vocabulary to describe the event. They're reading a script. You know it's a hoax. They don't all use the same vocabulary. That's collusion. And the fact that our Gospels actually are like witness accounts uh, if they all lined up like that, it would be collusion. It would not have the stamp of authenticity of a historical document. So that, that's good to know. I just tried to create that illustration uh, off the top of my head, but you see, you see the point. The other thing, and this, I don't know if this example can be solved by this, but the other thing is the scriptures don't expect a precision like we nowadays often expect in historical records. And the scripture doesn't have that level of precision. In, like, for instance, when they quote, and people say, well, look at that. The New Testament is quoting something and it doesn't quote it exactly. Well, so what? <laughs> they never quoted exactly when they wrote. They, they didn't do quotes the way we do quotes. It doesn't mean Luke made a mistake. <laughs> so we can't hold these authors that are witnesses giving us historical accounts, we can't hold them one-to-one to the same standards that we would use today. We would have to compare them to the standards of the other historians of the day in which they wrote. And when we do that, we find out they do very well. So the matter of precision comes up. And if you haven't read... You guys know the statement I'm looking for? That's the one I'm looking for. Thank you. The Chicago Statement on Inerrancy. Yeah, it was written back in the 1970s, I think. And on these subjects, you should read that. It's a wonderful document. It's got affirmations and denials in it. And it discusses all everything we're talking about here and much more. It discusses very clearly on how we understand inerrancy. Uh, so the, the, the document is free. You can just Google and, and get it or ask me and I'll give it to you. I've handed it out. It's called the Chicago it's Statement of What's that? That's right. It's on our website. <laughs> so <laughs> We put that on our website or did you add it? It's probably linked to the Google one. 
Yeah, I, well, I, I made sure that it was there when, oh. when uh, I was modifying it. I got to get in, put it in the new one. I'll do that. <laughs> well, anyway, Chicago in statement on biblical inerrancy. R.C. Sproul kind of wrote an interpretive um, uh, section back of it, helping us understand some of the terminology. I, I would just really, really encourage you guys to to have that statement and and, and read it. Uh, and if you have questions about it, um, talk to me. I, I'd love to interact with your questions about it. One of the things that statement does is it's interacting with Protestant liberalism from the uh, mid and late 19th and early 20th century. So some of the things you might not be able to understand because they're reacting against a, a Protestant liberal view of Scripture. But I can help you with that if there's some of them you don't understand. I can give you the background and you can see what they're, what they're reacting against. But, so thank you, Heidi, for the question. So we could plug that Chicago statement again. So... Have any of you read it besides Brian and I? Okay. You guys you guys need to read it. And you guys you studying a lot of theology? That's good. It's great that you study theology. You go, I'm not gonna go to that class. Dan beats up on us every week for studying theology. Keep studying your theology, <laughs> but you need to you need to study these issues about the about the text. So all right. Sounding like a broken record. Any other questions? Richard? Oh, yeah. I agree, Richard. You're, you're, you're right. You know, <clears throat> we have to deal with multiple fronts at the same time. The two Sundays ago, we were talking about how in Acts they were scattered abroad and they shared the gospel. And I came out really strong saying, you don't need to answer all the objections. You don't need to know answers to all of that to share the gospel. You just need to tell people the truth about who Jesus is and what he's done. And I, and I really emphasize that strongly. And, and that is true. And then also we're called to refute those who contradict, and so it's a both and. It's not a, it's not an either or. Evidence alone cannot will not convert a person, and you got to separate out. You got to figure out: is this person have a sincere question, or are they looking for excuses to not believe? When I was converted. I had questions about these kinds of things. And one of the first books I read was F.F. F. Bruce's paperback. It was a classic back in the 60s, 70s, and 80s on the New Testament documents, Are They Reliable? And, and it's about a 100-page paperback. And because I had, I mean, I think I was already converted but I had genuine questions about those things. And I was very grateful, you know, that I don't know who either, somebody gave me that book or I found it. And I, and I, read, I read that book. It was very helpful. So, you know, um, faith is not blind faith. And, and uh, Christianity is historical. That's different between Buddhism and other things, right? History has nothing to do. Buddhism is not historical. There's a lot of religions that aren't historical. That's not true Christianity. True Christianity is historical. There was a real person. His name was Jesus. He lived. He died. He rose from the dead. He taught. He worked miracles. These are all historical events. And so, in saving faith, we're not expected to... Just shut off the historical. Um, so it's a both and. But there's no use when someone doesn't have these problems or questions. 
if you're equipping them, they need to, they need to understand these things. So I'm I'm kind of thinking out loud and rambling around here. There, do you think so? Adding a different perspective, going back to Genesis, the number one, the, the first thing that Satan does is he questions what did God really say. Amen. So <laughs> when you have someone who, well, okay, there's a discrepancy in here. It can right. also be that there might be a little bit of um, thing interjecting. We're going to question. We're, I'm still questioning what the Word of God really says. You know, there's that whole point of, yeah. well, it started back with Adam and Eve, you know. Yeah. So the, it, Adam didn't pass it on. Maybe he passed it on correctly to Eve. Obviously, he told her what God had said. She was there. And then Satan was like, well, wait a second, did he really say that? So now we can jump to the New Testament, and Satan could still be using discrepancies. Oh, I, absolutely. With, okay, we can't explain this. So if we can't oh, explain it, then it's not be true. So I think there's another, there can be another reason why people who want to find fault with this, oh. that Satan started clear back 6,000 years ago. Absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. Has God said, and and of course, <clears throat> even and that is going in the direction of unbelief, because belief is believing response to what God says, and so if you attack what God says, you're going to undermine faith. You're going to, and that's oh, absolutely. So, so you see, what we need to be able to do is given. Uh, whatever situation we're in, we have to, we can't treat every situation the same. You know, if we're dealing with someone that doesn't have any of these objections and they're overwhelmed with guilt, we need to really explain the gospel saves us from all sin. And that that's what we need to do and emphasize. And we don't need to get involved in these things, you know, with the, with someone in that case. But if we're dealing with someone that has some genuinely intellectual problems or their head has been poisoned by a bunch of falsehood and there's a lot of people out there and you say, well, have you read the New Testament for yourself? Well, no, I watched the 60 Minutes thing. And I go, well, you know, if you're really sincere about this and evaluating the New Testament, just read it for yourself. Or just read one of the Gospels and then let's talk again. You know, if you're really sincere, you need you need to read it for yourself. And just leave it at that and have them go read it for, for themselves. But a lot of people have had lies put into their heads about these kinds of things. And so we just, we need to apply the right truth at the right time and may God help us. And even when we don't, he overrules us because His Holy Spirit is smart enough and powerful enough that we're bungling all around and someone still gets converted <laughs> in spite of us bungling all around and being a bad example. And, and, and yet, uh, uh, the Lord still converts the people, so, and which He does. So, all right. Anybody else? Okay. All right. I'm going to ask uh, maybe Jamal way in the back there lead us in prayer. Give him the microphone. You guys live together so you can handle it. (laughs) Father in heaven, we thank you for uh, this evening. Uh, We thank you for bringing us all together to listen to the teaching of Dan. We thank you for giving him wisdom, allowing him to present us with your word uh, and the difficulties that it bears. Lord, I pray that you would open our hearts, that your spirit would illuminate your word uh, to our hearts and minds as we uh, seek to uh, learn uh, and to, to learn more about that that you have given to us and your revealed word. We thank you for your son who you have given us that we may be reconciled back to you, that we may be in communion with you, that we may be able to love and cherish you. Father, I pray that as we 
continue to uh, read more, continue to uh, step out in faith to proclaim your son, that you would go before us as we as we do this and give us the faith and the boldness and confidence to speak the simple truth, the truth that's easy easy for a child to understand, Lord. And we know that it is not our words or the way that we present cases uh, about your son to uh, people, but it is your Holy Spirit that can converts and convicts, Lord. And so I thank you for that. Uh, it takes the pressure off of us, Lord, and allows us to be uh, submissive to you and obedient to your word. So I thank you for this time, Lord. I pray as we uh, go out for the rest of our week that you would uh, be with us, that you would allow us to draw near to you, Lord, and that you would uh, also uh, allow us to have safe travels on our way home. In Jesus' name, amen.